Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the, every, the first and the last. And Lord, we celebrate that, especially on this day when we put all of our focus on the resurrection and the celebration that is your victory over sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. Lord, we ask that as we, we come and we celebrate, we, we talk about your word and we talk about the, we share the life uh, of you together in, in the midst of us today. Lord, we want to walk out closer to you, more understanding about who you are, and, and experience more of your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to need you guys to participate today because it is Easter Sunday, so you guys need to be on the edge of your seat. You need to be ready to shout, ready to be engaged. How many of you guys are excited about this morning already? How many of you guys woke up excited? All right, good. At least half of you. There's at least four of you there. Okay, that's good. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag this morning, and, and it's this. Jesus wins. Amen? At the end of it all, Jesus wins. There is no one greater. How many of you guys know that sin was strong, but Jesus is greater? Hell was strong, but Jesus is greater. Death was strong, but Jesus is greater. The grave was strong, but Jesus is greater. What, what is it about this, this man that, was, that lived just a little uh, obscure life or an obscure town, was born in an obscure place 2,000 years ago that all of a sudden is, becomes the most influential person in all of history? What, what is it about this man that becomes that? I mean, if he was just a teacher, there's no way that would have happened. If he was just a good person, there's no way that would have happened. If he was just another martyr, there's no way that would have happened. So what is it about this guy that all of a sudden becomes the most influential person in all of history and has enormous relevance to our lives today? And the answer to that question is this. This guy claimed to be God, and he proved it by rising from the dead. Amen? He claimed to be God. So, so we look at Confucius' tomb, and it's occupied. Buddha's tomb is occupied. Muhammad's tomb is occupied. But how many of you guys know when you go to Jesus' tomb, what is it? It's empty. And so you can walk into it right to this day, and it is empty. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Some of you guys know there is no other king. Now, I want you to imagine with me today that you had a date set two weeks from now, that you were going to come face-to-face with the king. You were going to come face-to-face with Jesus. You had a, an important date set. You had a, a fancy location that you were going to go to, and you were going to sit down and have a, a meal with the king. How many of you guys might prepare for that moment just a little bit? How many of you guys would go shopping? How many of you ladies would go shopping, right? Any, any of you? Okay. How, how many of you guys would, would prepare for that? How many of you guys would probably look at your life and reevaluate some things, and maybe at least for a two-week span of time, stop doing certain things? Maybe certain spending habits. Maybe uh, certain TV shows. You stop watching a bunch of loss reruns, right? You, whatever it is for you. But you would want to clean up. How many of you guys would clean up your life a little bit, at least for two weeks? Anybody? Is it just me? Okay. I just want to know. Is it just me? I think a lot of us would. Why? Because we don't want to be standing before the King of Kings uh, with any shame in our life, with any uh, sin that all of a sudden gets exposed. We don't want to be there in a moment like that. There's a story of a woman in the Bible that we're going to look at today uh, who met the king. Many of you guys know this story. It's a story that this woman who was caught in adultery, and the Pharisees come, and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And they say this in John chapter 8, verse 3. 
says, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, a lot of times in this story, we look at this story from the perspective of, you know, what are these Pharisees doing in this moment? What, we look at this story from the standpoint of what's Jesus going to do? And all those things are valid. But I want you just for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of the woman who's there at, at the feet. There she is, literally coming face to face with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords at probably the worst moment in all of her life. And that's the moment that she comes face to face with Jesus. How many of you guys would not like to have that moment, right? I mean, so imagine if you were to come face to face with the King of Kings on your worst day. Not even just the day that you yell at your kids, you know, not, not that day, but I mean the day of your worst sin. If you can even remember, whatever that is for you, if you can imagine that's the day you show up and it's like, here, here we are. Well, the truth is, we all encounter the king on our worst day. Because he's been in every single moment of our life. And if you look at the timeline of our life, the worst moment we have come face to face with the king. And the truth is, we, we all meet the king on our worst day. And here's the amazing part of the story of Jesus, is that he still died for us on our worst day. He didn't pick our best day. He died for us even on our worst day. The Bible says that even while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. How many of you guys are thankful for that? That even on your worst day, that he died for you. Now, it's tempting with all the problems in the world and all the sin in the world, and, and you just look through the news. How many of you guys ever scroll through the news and you get depressed, right? I mean, you scroll through the news and you're like, man, look at all the evil in the world. Look at all the, the, the evil people and the disaster and the sin and the struggle and people doing evil things. It's, it's tempting when you look at that to think that Jesus came to the world to, bring, to, to squash all of those things, all those people that are doing those things, to, to squash all that. But how many of you guys know, here, here's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came that through the world, he, it might be, or through him, the world might be saved. Amen? In fact, we know John 3.16. How about John uh, 3.17? It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. I want you to get this this morning, that at the forefront of the gospel message is not the wrath of God. It's the goodness of God. It's not the wrath of God. And even though the, we, we see that, you know, the, the wrath of God, you know, on the cross and all that stuff, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is the goodness of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or you, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you guys know that the gospel is good news? Good news. And so what I want to do today, with the time we have today, and I'll have to move fairly quick, uh, but I want to, what I want to do is I want to remind you that the good news is still good. The good news is still good. In all the evil that's happening in the world, in all the, the messages that get uh, twisted, that the good news is still good. And I want to give you three thoughts uh, that I've been, I mean, I've rewritten this message like 14,000 times this week, but I, want to, I settled on three that, that I want to highlight that, that says the good news is still good. So let's look at the rest of this story in John chapter 8, verse 5. It says, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he rode in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, imagine this, worst moment of her life, right before the king. And he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Here's what's amazing about this story to me as I was thinking about it this week. In that moment when that woman who is caught in adultery is at the feet of Jesus, if Jesus would have picked up a stone in that moment and threw it at her head and killed her, not one person would have had a problem with that because of the law of the day. No one would have thought that Jesus was wrong. No one would have said anything against it. They would have celebrated it. Think about that. But Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. How many of you guys are thankful for that? He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but through him, the world might be saved. And so I want to give you three thoughts about how the good news is still good. And the first one is this. Jesus throws ropes, not rocks. Whenever you are in sin, Jesus doesn't pick up a rock and throw it at you. He puts down a rope as a lifeline to get you out of sin. How many of you guys are thankful for that? Jesus throws ropes, not rocks. Sometimes when we look at the story of, of like a story like this and we see someone caught in gross sin, what we think is we start to compare ourselves to them and think, well, well doesn't this person need some sort of punishment? Doesn't this, per this person is a bad person for doing something like this? How do you guys know that grace seems unfair when it's given to anyone else but you? Let me say that again. Grace seems unfair when it's given to anyone else but you. I don't know about you, but when grace, when I need grace, I'm like, God, thank you for your grace. Man, you're such a good God. But when I look at somebody else's life and I see their problems, I'm thinking, man, they're a horrible person. <laughs> you know, sometimes we just think that way. And, and so what do we do? We start to put ourselves in categories of, well, I'm a good person and they're a bad person. How many of you guys have ever done that before? I'm a good person, they're a bad person. And it starts to distort our view of God and how God looks at the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, at the, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though per, for perhaps a good person one might even dare to die, but God shows his love for us that, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's this scripture saying? It's saying, how many of you guys would agree that, that I'm not going to just die? There's a small list of people I'm going to take a bullet for, right? There's a small list. It's probably people that I'm close to, family, people that I consider in my life to be good. And the Bible says, we can wrap our minds around that. We can get the idea that, that if there was a good person, I might dare to die for them. But God is totally different. That he takes somebody who's not in the good category, but in the bad category, and in their worst moment, he's willing to die for them. That is the love of God. But God, and, and so the problem is this, that good and bad are not valid categories. We can't just put ourselves in the category of good or the category of bad. Because why? Because good and bad, it's a, very, it's a scale of good to bad. If you have the extreme bad over here and the extreme good over here, it's really a spectrum. And so I want you guys right now to think about your life. 
and, and do a little thought experiment with me. If you were to see this scale right now of extreme good on this side, extreme bad on that side, where would you put yourself on this scale? Would you kind of tilt over to this side because of things going on in your life? Would you tilt over here and say, well, I'm not like extremely good, but I'm kind of right here. See, all of us might be able to locate ourselves on that scale, but where we estimate ourselves to be is only relative. It's only based on our opinion. So let me ask you, how do you come to the conclusion of where you are on that scale? The way you come to that conclusion is by comparing yourself to other people. So we say, well, I must be right here because I'm, I'm better than that person, but I'm not as good as that person. And we begin to compare ourselves and begin to slot ourselves into where we fit on that timeline. And so comparison, am I doing better or worse than them? Do I have better kids than they have? Better well-behaved kids? Well, I must be moving up a notch. Do I have a, a better life? Do I have better habits? Do I have better goals? Do I have a better lawnmower? Do I have a better house? Whatever it is. And it moves us up or down the scale. Here's what comparison is. All comparison is is literally comparing sins. Comparison is comparing sins. And, and there's no good that comes out of comparing sins. And so here's the truth. God does not see in categories of bad and good, of good and bad. God doesn't see in those categories. You know what God sees? God sees in categories of death and life. He says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but you've been made alive. So God doesn't look at this scale. He looks at whether you're alive or whether you're dead. And that is good news for us because there is no way that we can work ourselves into becoming a good person. We can't do that. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. But sometimes I think when we look at this issue of grace and the gospel, we think sometimes we can be more religious than God. And we think, well, maybe God wants to not look at it in categories of good, good or death and life, but good and bad. And so we start to do that, and we start to think that we should be saved by some other means. It reminds me of the story of this guy who, uh, it, there was a big flood happening, and so uh, he gets, I mean, the floodwaters are rising up. He gets up on top of his roof because the flood is rising so high. And so he starts to pray a prayer. I mean, it, this is it. This is like the end. And so he, he needs saving. So he prays to God. He says, God, please save me. Help me. Uh, I, I'm going to die here. And so uh, while he's praying, this neighbor comes by in this canoe, and he's, he's trying to get out of there. He says, come on, let's go, let's go. And he says, no, 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 I, I've prayed to God that he's going to save me, and, and I've got it taken care of. And so the neighbor's like, whatever. And so he just goes on. Well, the waters continue to rise, and pretty soon a police boat comes by, and they say, sir, listen, the waters are rising. You're going to die if you stay here. Get in the boat. Let's go. He says, no, I prayed to God to save me, and uh, I'm, I believe he's going to save me. And so the police boat said, fine, we can't make you get in. And so they drove on off. Finally, the waters have risen up. He's at the peak of his roof, and he's standing there. The waters are rising, and a, a, a helicopter, a rescue helicopter comes, drops a rope ladder down for him, and says, sir, you need to get on. The waters are going to rise, and you're going to die. And he says, no, I've got it taken care of. I prayed to God. He's going to save me. And they finally, they just left. Well, the end of the story uh, ends up, the guy drowns. Surprise, right? The guy drowns. And so he's in heaven. And so he demands an audience with God. He says, God, I need to meet with you. And so he gets in, he starts to meet with God, and he says, listen, God, I, what's the deal? 
I mean, I've lived my life as a, as a good person, and I, and I prayed for you to help me and to save me, and you, you just left me there. And God says, no, I didn't. I sent you a canoe. I sent you a boat. I sent you a rescue helicopter, and you didn't get in any one of them. Now, here's the this point of that story. I think so many times we can be so religious that we think God ought to save us in a way that he never intended to save us. And usually that defaults back to being good. Like if I could be good enough, then God would save me. But God's way to save us is not through being good. God has already sent his rope ladder. He threw down a rope and it was in the form of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and raising from the dead so that we might have grace, so that we don't have to work for it or earn it. But he saved us through his grace. How many of you guys love that grace is free? Grace is not an excuse to sin. It's a lifeline from sin. It's, if we work for it, it's not grace. If we try to earn it, it's not grace. Now, let me ask you guys, it's going to be a participation. Who wants something free this morning? Anybody want something free? I mean, right, right now, free. All right, right here, right here. Come on up here. I'm going to give you something free right now. You don't, well, if you don't want it, that's fine. If you don't, is anybody else? Okay, no, all right, you got it. All right, come on up here. You want something free? All right, uh, I've got something free. It's actually a $25 gift card to Buffalo Wild Wings. Now, uh, I'm going to give, how many, guys, how many guys are saying, man, praise the Lord right now. I mean, this, is, this service just got a lot better, right? All right, so I'm going to give this to you, but I'll, it's $25 gift card, but I'm going to give this to you, but I'm going to need $25. Uh, I have to write a check. You have to write a check. Okay, all right, so you don't, you don't have a check. All right, uh, well, let's see. I'm going to give this to you, but, but here's the deal. Um, after a service like this, we have a lot of uh, things that happen in the building. And so, like, there's, there's a bunch of diapers over here and stuff that the, the babies create. And uh, so if you wouldn't mind, I'll give this to you. But if you'd stick around for maybe a couple hours and clean up some things, then I'll give this to you, okay? How, do, how does that sound? I would do if I have to get a turkey out of the oven. you got to get a turkey out of the oven. Okay, all right, so... Do you have anything of value on you right now that you could trade me for this card right now? Do you have a, a child, a, a wedding ring? Is, is there anything that, that of value? Okay. I can give you Jesus' love. Jesus' love. Oh, that's worth pretty good. That's a great answer. All right. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to give this to you. Why? Here's the thing. A gift is free. If I, if I demand her to give me money for it, what does it become? It becomes a payment. If I have her do some work for me, it becomes work. It becomes a job in exchange for something. If we trade something, it's bartering. I'm going to give this to you for free. Now, here's the thing. The thing is, is that that's what grace is like. Grace is completely free. And yet we try to work for it. We try to barter for it. No, I'm giving it to you free. No, I'm certain. That's the way we are with grace, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. It was, free, it was free for you, right? But it wasn't free for me. It cost me something. Is anybody following me this morning? See, grace is free to us, but it cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. It cost him his blood. Would you give her a big hand? And that is yours for free. So innocent blood had to be shed. It was free for us. But it wasn't free for Jesus. An innocent life in exchange for guilty lives. Why would God set up a system where innocent, an innocent person would have to give his life for the guilty? And I'll tell you exactly why God set this up this way. It's because God is not fair. And I am so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that God is not fair. Because if God were fair to me, I would deserve destruction. 
I would not have a place of rescue, but because God loved us even while we were still sinners, even when it wasn't the fair thing to do, God loved me so much. How many of you guys are thankful that God isn't fair and he loves us too much? Amen. Grace is free. Now, in the Old Testament, when you would have sin in your life, they would have to bring a lamb, and they would have to bring a perfect and spotless lamb, and, and they would bring it to the priest, and as they would bring it to the priest, the priest, would not, the priest would not inspect the bringer of the lamb. It would only inspect the lamb. I want you to understand, we have the perfect and spotless lamb as our sacrifice. And God does not inspect us. He inspects the perfection that is the righteousness of God in Christ that was given to us as a free gift. So that when God looks at us and he looks at, at our sin and he looks at all, all of that, he sees the righteousness of Christ on us. How many of you guys are so thankful for that? That's the message of Easter. That's the message of the resurrection. When you meet Jesus, here's what I want you to get. When you meet Jesus, sin is not the problem. Sin was the problem because Jesus took care of the sin problem. And he did it 2,000 years ago. Jesus was greater than sin. He won the battle. Something that is not a problem if we have the solution. And here's the solution in Romans 5.19. It says, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's, that many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but here's the good news. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, as, much, as fast as sin can go and as much as sin can grow, grace always outpaces and outgrows sin. There's no sin in your life that can outdo grace. Wherever there's sin, grace is much, much more. Grace is not an excuse to sin, but it is a lifeline from sin. Now, every time I think about this story of the woman caught in adultery, it reminds me of a story when I was a youth pastor. It reminds me of a story of, of uh, we would bus in a lot of kids that were uh, from all different backgrounds, and, and uh, we would have a lot of people just come and give their life to Jesus, and rough people, and, and people, you know, teenagers with drug problems, and teenagers with suicide, I mean, just every, the whole gamut, Christian kids, and so we had a, quite a mix, and, and we'd have several hundred teenagers there every single Wednesday night. Well, one night, the, in particular, this young lady came in, and she, let's just say she wasn't appropriately dressed, <laughs> and the junior high boys were like, whoa, what's going on? And so all of our youth leaders we're kind of huddled over in the corner saying, what are we going to do? We got to put a shirt on this lady, on this girl. We got to, you know, do something. This cannot, I mean, we got, you know, the Christian kids, you know, and all this stuff. And, and so here's this young lady coming in that does not know Jesus, that doesn't know, that just walks in the door. And imagine if the first thing that you get when you walk in the door is a bunch of religious people trying to clean you up. And so I said, no, 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 guys, we're not going to, we're not going to do anything. And we went through that service, and at the end of the service, I gave an altar call to receive Christ, and she raised her hand to receive Christ that night. And I thought, man, would that, would that have happened if a bunch of religious people would have got in beforehand and tried to clean her up before she met Jesus? Here's the thing about grace. Grace it is free. It, you don't have to clean yourself up to receive grace. But here's also the thing about grace. Jesus didn't say... I, you know, I, he didn't just say, I don't condemn you. He said, go and sin no more. Because here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we are. He'll give us grace where we are, but he loves us too much. And so the Bible says that Jesus came not only with grace, but he also came with truth. 
And so Jesus throws ropes, not rocks. But here's the second thing I want you to get, that Jesus gives keys, not cages. I'll explain this in just a minute. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A friend of mine said, truth without grace is mean. (laughs) Have you guys ever experienced truth without grace? But grace without truth is meaningless. You need both of them together. Jesus came full of both grace and truth. Now, many times we try to build our lives on things that, uh, and we fail because we are missing certain ingredients. We left one ingredient out of our life, and because we're building it on the wrong ingredients, it's like trying to bake a chocolate fudge cake and leaving out the chocolate. How many of you guys know that is a tragedy, and you're no friend of mine if you ever do that and give that to me, okay? Uh, but you, if you leave an important ingredient out, you're going to fail. And so here's what it looks like a lot of times. Have you guys have ever made New Year's resolutions this past year? Just raise your hand if you did. Uh, no, this is what it was like. No, everyone's afraid to, to go on record that I made one because most likely the statistics say that 92% of us will not keep them. So, uh, but all right, so we got one person in the building who made that, uh, a New Year's resolution. But the number one is to lose weight or to get in shape. And so here's what happens in our life. Whenever we want to make a big change, we say, you know what? I don't like the way I feel. I don't like the way I look. I don't like the way I don't have enough energy or whatever it is. And so I'm going to get in shape in January. And so we set out a plan and the gyms all fill up. You know, the the workout stations all fill up in January because everyone does not like the way they feel after eating all the Christmas, Thanksgiving, holiday season. So now I'm going to get in shape. And so what happens? You start to, you start your workout program day after day, or maybe it's your marriage and you think, you know what? My marriage really is not going well right now. I, it's, it's a disaster. It's a mess. I don't like the way that that our emotions are right now. I don't like where things are at. And so you want to make a change. And so you come up with a plan and you start to change it because you don't like where it is, the way it feels. That sounds good on the surface. It sounds like a great motivation on the surface, but it's missing an ingredient. And here's why. It's because it's only based and motivated by what you feel. If I feel, don't feel good, so I want to work out, if I don't feel like the way I look, and so I want to change that, what happens when it's based on feeling? If you start to, to run every day and you're going out for a jog, day one is great. Day two, I'm still strong. Day three, we're still going. Day four, a little bit of struggle, but I push through it. Day five, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting into adrenaline mode now. What happens when you get to like day seven and the alarm clock goes off Which feels better, running or sleeping? Sleeping. And so since it's based on what you feel, it's like, hey, I wanted to feel good. Well, I feel pretty good that I did six days out of seven, so now I'm just going to sleep in. And so now we have succeeded because our our whole goal was based on feeling. Even our our marriage, if our whole goal is based on feeling, uh, what happens there's always going to be a better feeling that comes along in a different moment. And if it's based and motivated by feelings in our life, then what's going to happen? Whenever you're working out, you're trying to eat right. You're like, man, I feel really good trying to eat right. So I'm going to eat a bunch of broccoli. I'm going to eat a bunch of carrots. I feel really good about myself right now. But what happens? Satan uh, appears in the form of a Krispy Kreme donut, doesn't he? Every single time. Every single time. And so what feels better at the moment after four or five days of not eating hardly anything, and all of a sudden what feels better is a Krispy Kreme donut instead of eating right. Right? So what is missing? What's missing is truth. If we base our life on feelings, then there's always going to be a better feeling that comes along to trump the original feeling that got you motivated to change. 
There's always, you're always going to fall prey to a weakness because a better feeling will come along. It'll happen if you build your marriage upon feelings. And all it is is how my spouse can make me feel. Guess what? There will be a day when somebody else comes along and makes you feel better. And if your life is motivated, your marriage is motivated on feelings, there's going to be an issue. How many of you guys know you can apply this to every single area of your life? We need truth. When your life is based upon truth, then how many of you guys know that truth does not change? So truth is the same yesterday as it is today, and it will be tomorrow. And if my life is based upon truth, then I know that I'm, I'm going to succeed because it's based upon truth. Truth is the only thing that you can confidently build your life upon. And so if that's true, that that's the only thing we can confidently build our life upon, why do we reject truth so often? Why do people reject truth? I'll give you a couple reasons that I thought about this week, why we reject truth. If we know that truth is what it takes, why do we reject it? Number one, it's because people usually say truth with the wrong motives. And because, some, how many of you guys have ever had somebody tell you the truth? You knew it was the truth, but they said it in a way that wasn't very kind, and so you just rejected it even though you knew it was true. I've done it before. I'm like, forget it. I don't even care if you're right, but the way you said it, I'm not allowing it to come in my life. It's because we didn't say it or we didn't hear it in love. Ephesians chapter 4, 15 says, uh, instead we shall speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Speaking the truth of love, in love. A couple years ago, I was, uh, we just moved into our house, and inside the house, we had this old wood stove. The wood stove still worked, but all the piping was all rotted out and stuff, and so we wanted to just sell it and get rid of it. And so I put it out on Craigslist, and I thought, well, I'll just try to sell this out on Craigslist, and I know you're supposed to just deal locally, but I got this email from this guy who's from, like, the Ozark Mountains or something like that, and I'm like, you know, is this a scam? Is this real? But he said, I will pay you full price for it. I will give you cash and I'll drive up to meet you on Saturday. And I thought, well, what do I have to lose? I mean, if he doesn't show up, you know, it's no big deal. And so I said, all right. And so I'm waiting on that Saturday. To, I've got the wood stove pulled out there and I'm just waiting for this guy to show up. And as I'm watching out the, the door, all of a sudden I see this 15 passenger van driving up the road. And I'm like, what? Maybe this is the guy, but all over the van is written things like, like turn or burn, you know, you're going, you know, uh, adultery's a sin. I mean, plastered all over this van. I mean, wrapped in, I mean, this guy had to spend a ton of money painting this all over his van. And I'm like, what is going on? What did I get myself into? And he pulls into my driveway and he steps out and the guy looks like he came from like two centuries ago. And, and I'm, I'm not making fun of him. Kind of, I am. Um, but I'm like, what is going on? And so uh, he's got this big old van. He steps out. I'm like, did I just step into a time warp, a movie? What am I in? Is there a camera hidden somewhere? I know there's got to be one. And so he steps out, and sure enough, he, this guy steps out, and he's got a whole family with him. They're all dressed like Little House on the Prairie. I'm serious about this. There were 14 people in this van, and they were all his offspring. It was crazy. And so they all step out, and they all line up, and they all tell me their names and everything like that, and Jedediah and Job, and, I mean, all of them. And uh, I'm not kidding. And so I'm sitting there. I'm like, what in the world? I've got to just hurry up here. You know, give me the cash, and let's get this thing out of the way. And, and, uh, and so this whole surreal moment. And, and it was interesting. I told him, I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he, he leans into me, and he says, you know what? I just got to be honest. You know, I was really concerned about dealing with people on Craigslist. It's so nice to be dealing with normal people. 
I said, please, please, thank you. Uh, but I'm thinking, please leave before you put a curse on me or whatever you're going to do, just do it and leave, you know? And I thought, man, there's nothing wrong with preaching the truth. I mean, this guy had the truth, quote unquote, all over his van. But it's the way we talk about truth sometimes that causes us to get hurt or, or not. There's nothing wrong with a strong message, but I didn't sense much love in his message at all. And he began to tell me about that as well. And then he left me a pamphlet that said something about hell. I don't know. Uh, here's the thing. The truth, how many of you guys have ever experienced the truth being spoken without love before? Has anybody ever experienced that? Sure, every single person. The truth can be spoken without love, but here's the thing. I'm unconvinced that love can exist without speaking the truth. If you love someone, you will speak the truth to them. How can you say you love someone as you're watching them go to their destruction and you say nothing? There's nothing wrong with the truth and speaking the truth. And that's why I say Jesus speaks the truth to us. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. He loves us too much to leave us on the road to destruction. The second reason why uh, we don't receive truth or why we reject truth is because I think we do not understand the purpose of truth. We do not. We misinterpret the purpose of truth. You see, truth will bring correction. Truth will bring conviction. Truth sometimes goes against the grain. Listen, it is not hateful, like our society says, to speak the truth. It is not hateful to speak the truth. There's nothing wrong with speaking the truth. But I want you to know something today. Truth has a purpose. Truth has a purpose. We've heard this scripture, but I think we skip over the purpose of truth. It's found in John chapter 8, verse 32. And you will know the truth. And here's the purpose of truth. Truth will set you free. Truth's purpose is never to point a finger. Truth's purpose is to set us free. Truth's purpose is never for condemnation. It's for freedom. Truth, the message of truth is not to counterbalance the message of grace. Well, grace is too free. It's too good. So let's bring truth into it so that we can bring some condemnation to people to kind of balance. That's not what truth is about. Truth is there because it is there to set us free. I think a lot of people think that truth is about boundaries. It's like, okay, well, here's, here, here you are, and here's truth, and you've got to stay in this box and restrictive box because here's the box of morality, and here's truth. Now stay in it. Truth is not about boundaries. That's why I say Jesus gives keys, not cages. Jesus never came to bring truth and put you in a cage of truth or a cage of morality. Jesus came to give you a key to set you free. Free from what? Free from death. Jesus knows that if we, the Bible says sin leads to death. And if we follow after Jesus' way, we become set free. But if we follow after the world's way, we actually get put in a cage. But a lot of times we misinterpret the purpose of truth. Truth is not there to put you in a cage. It's there to set you free. How many of you guys are thankful that you have been set free? And the abundant life is the best life that you could ever live. Following Jesus is not a restrictive life. It's the life of freedom, grace, and truth. Let me give you the third thought that I believe why the good news is still good, and that's this. Jesus throws parties, not funerals. Jesus throws parties, not funerals. I want you to think about this, that every funeral Jesus ever showed up to, he crashed. <laughs> every funeral Jesus ever showed up to, it turned into a party before they were done. 
I mean, you think about the, the widow of Nain's son as he's walking, he encounters this funeral procession. I mean, they're singing the dirge. They're, they're having a, a horrible day. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and before that moment's over, it's turned into a party, and everybody's celebrating. Think about Jairus' daughter. Jairus, you know, his daughter had died. Everyone's weeping and wailing, and Jesus comes, and before the day is out, that funeral turned into a party. Think about Lazarus. Lazarus had been in the, the grave for, for four days, and they were weeping on the outside, but Jesus comes, and before the night is over, before the day is over, that place turned into a party and everyone was celebrating. Every single funeral Jesus showed up to turned into a party. He could have a reality TV show called Funeral Crashers. It would be awesome. Can you imagine that one? That would be awesome. Jesus turns funerals into parties. I want you to think about that, that story, the prodigal son. Pastor Aaron talked about it a, a couple weeks ago. It's one of the greatest examples of the heart of God, and that's why we share it. Because here's this son, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but here's the son who's done all this sin, all this horrible stuff, and he gets ready to come back to the father's house. And I want you to watch in his mind what's happening. In his mind, the son who once existed is dead. And he's coming back to the father's house, not as a son anymore, because there's a funeral. And he said, I'm not a son, I'm only a servant, and he's coming back. But how many of you guys know the picture of the father is when the father encounters that funeral, he turns it into a party. He says, let's give you a robe, let's give you a ring, let's have a party, let's have a party. That's what Jesus does. You may be here this morning, and there's something in your life that needs to die. There's something in your life that needs to go on the altar. That's fine. An altar is not good for anything unless something dies upon it. But here's what I want you to catch even more than that. The gospel is not good for anything unless something resurrects. Unless something resurrects. And God wants to resurrect things in our life. God wants to bring things back to life. In the words of the great theologian Gracie Allen, some of you guys are going to get that, some of you guys won't. She said this, don't put a period where God puts a comma. And some of us in our life, we're putting a period at the end of a certain season of our life. And we say, well, that was it. You know what? That's the funeral. I'm done. And God says, no, I intended for there to be a comma there because we're getting ready to have a party. There's getting ready to be a resurrection. You, you put a period at the end of your ministry and God said, no, there's a comma. That's just a pit stop. We're going to have a resurrection. You put a period at the end of your relationship and God said, no, that's a comma. We're going to continue on. But God are two of the best words in all of scripture. I said it last week, but if you can have a but God after what, whatever happened before, it doesn't matter as long as you have but God in his mercy, but God in his love, but God in his power, but God in his strength, but God. How many of you guys love those two words? the game changer. It's the game changer right there. So this guy, this prodigal son's life was over as he knew it, but God had other plans. I'll tell you one last story. How many of you guys are familiar with Billy Graham? Of course, most of us are. Billy Graham, the, one of the greatest evangelists of our time. Well, several years ago, in fact, decades ago, this story is kind of a famous story, but decades ago, Billy Graham was actually driving down the road and speeding. <laughs> He gets pulled over by a cop. The cop pulls him over and says, sir, do you know that you were speeding? He says, yes, sir, I was speeding. And so the cop writes him a ticket and a fine that he has to go and show up in court. And so Billy Graham shows up in court one day, and the judge doesn't recognize him or anything, but he says, sir, what do you plead? And Billy Graham says, guilty. And he says, all right, you went 10 miles over the speed limit, so that's a dollar for every mile over the speed limit. How many of you guys know this was a long time ago, if that's the way it was? 
And so he's like, all right. So he starts to fill out the paperwork and begins ready to, to, to pay his fine. And all of a sudden, the judge recognizes it's Billy Graham. And he says, you're, you're Billy Graham. He's like, I recognize you. I've been to a crusade. I've, I've seen, you're Billy Graham. He said, yeah, I'm Billy Graham. So he's kind of like half embarrassed that he's been, he's like, yeah, I'm Billy Graham. He's like, you're Billy Graham. And so as he's getting all excited about this, he takes out his wallet and he lays down a $10 bill and he pays the fine for Billy Graham. And then he, the judge takes Billy Graham out for a steak dinner and buys him a steak dinner. And Billy Graham remarks after that story, he says, that's exactly how God treats sinners who repent. How many of you guys are thankful that God paid your fine, even while you were in your sin? But God doesn't just pay your fine. God doesn't just pay your fine and say, okay, we're having a funeral. God throws a party. Wherever you're at this morning, you say, well, I'm stuck in sin. I'm I'm stuck in sin right now. If I were to meet the king right now, I'd be very, very embarrassed. You know what God will do to you if you say, I'm coming to you, Lord? He'll pay your fine, and he'll throw you a party. That's how good God is. The good news is still good. The good news is good news. Jesus throws ropes, not rocks. Jesus gives keys, not cages. Jesus turns funerals into parties. That's just who he is. That's who he is. He paid your fine. He wiped away your sin. He wants to give you something you don't deserve. He wants to give you grace. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes just right there where you're at? Nobody moving around or looking around. I want to ask you one final question. You know, we we talked about the prodigal son. We talked about the woman in adultery. Now, can we talk about you for just a second? If you were to stand before Jesus right now, if you were to have your moment before the king, what would that moment look like? You say, I'm not ready. Well, here's the truth. We usually don't get an opportunity to prepare to meet the king. You say, well, well, I've been planning. My plan is that I'm going to wait until my deathbed, and then I'll get right with God. That seems to be a lot of people's plans. But how many of you guys know that we're never promised life? We're never promised tomorrow. The Bible says that life is but a vapor. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. We're never promised tomorrow. And so if you're to stand before the king right now, what would that moment look like? You see, as Jesus was crucified, the Bible tells us that he wasn't crucified alone, but but on his right and on his left, there there was a thief on each side. How do you guys know this was not their greatest moment? They were caught in their sin and they were being punished in the moment. They were dying for their own sins right there. This was not their moment to meet the king. They were not prepared for this but there they were. And here's what's interesting. Two people, two different responses. One of them mocked Jesus, and one of them asked for grace. And Jesus turned to the one who was unprepared to meet the king in that day, and he said, I'm going to pay your fine. And in fact, he said, I'm going further. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise, and I guarantee you there was a party. Even there, he could not earn it. There's nothing he could do in that moment to earn it, There's nothing he could do in that moment to buy it. There's nothing he could do in that moment to change anything except for receive the grace that God had for him in that moment. And so today, I want you to understand this morning, you have heard the gospel message that Jesus died and lived a perfect sinless life. He was the perfect spotless lamb and he laid down his life for our sins and he paid the price for our sins and he rose from the dead and today he's asking you, he's offering you grace and eternal life. 
Today will be the day that you accept or reject Jesus. You can no longer say, I never heard the message. If you stand before the king, you can't say, I didn't ever hear. Today you will either accept him or reject him. You'll accept him by saying, yes, I'll follow you. Yes, I want to receive your grace. Or you'll reject him by your silence. You have two decisions. You have two choices. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so I simply want to ask you, where are you at with Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Are you alive in Christ? Or do you find yourself dead in sin? You find yourself in in a lot of ways opposed to God's ways. Today, you can change all of that by saying yes by faith. Say, I want to follow you, Jesus. And I just need to know if we need to take a moment out of this service to do that. Maybe you've you've been in church all your life and, and you just don't even know where you stand before God. If you were to stand before him right now, today you can be sure before you walk out of this place. Maybe at one point you were following Jesus, but for whatever reason you... You find yourself, you know, I'm not really on that road right now, and I want to come back to the Father's house, as it were. You can do that today. You can make things right today. You can come back to the Father's house. If that's you, would we just do something for me, just between you and God right now, just as an act of faith, as an action that you can do that signifies that you are agreeing with this, not just internally, but outwardly. If that's you, you say, I want to follow Jesus. Would you just lift up your hand and put it right back down? All right, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So many people, so many hands this morning. You know what God is doing for you right now? He's already done it. You realize he's already paid your fine. Every sin you've ever committed. The Bible says that once you, you follow after Jesus, once you say yes to Jesus, that everything in the past is gone, and this is a brand new day. Here's what we're gonna do. The Bible says that what you believe in your heart Confess with your mouth and you'll be saved. And so I'm going to help you confess that out, what's happening on the inside. I'm going to give you some words. Nothing magical about this prayer or anything like that. It's simply putting words to what's happening on the inside. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement of agreement with what's happening. And so I want us all to pray this together. I can supply the words, but you've got to supply the meaning. You've got to supply the faith and the heart behind it. And so let's all pray this together. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for paying the price for my sins. And for raising from the dead, I believe that you have grace for me. I choose to follow you by faith from this moment forward. I believe that you are Lord of my life, that you are in charge from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I pray that that revelation that you are a good and loving father that you've paid, that you've wiped it clean, that from the, everything from this moment forward has new spiritual DNA, that the old life is gone, that there is not even a remembrance of their sins any longer, and today they walk in new life. Today they have been made alive in Christ. Let that revelation come all over these people who said yes to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come on, let's stand up and let's celebrate Jesus one more time. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.